The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, untape your gerbil from the Estes rocket and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 226 with guest Daniel Simmons, recorded live Monday, April 2nd, 2007. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net. Training developers to work smarter, and now bringing the just-in-time team system class with Joel Semeniak, on-site for your development team. Online at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows Forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who could have sworn the Magic Kingdom was a mushroom farm in Vancouver, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much, and welcome to .NET Rocks. This is uh, the day after hump day, Thursday. And uh, I'm here with Richard Campbell. Of course, we're not here, but we're here with you. We're somewhere. Yeah. I'm still shaking off Dev Connections, of course. Dev Connections is a lot of fun. Great interview with Dan Appleman. I really enjoyed doing that. And more to come, too. That wasn't the only thing we were doing while we were there. So uh, if you if you were one of the people who knew what Richard and Dan were talking about with all that chip stuff, send us an email and try to outgeek Richard. Because I'm, <laughs> I don't know as if you could. It'd yeah, be we fun. Get down, anyway. We got down to the plumbing that day. It was fun. Uh, so uh, you know, every once in a while, we get an unusual request from one of our listeners, and this one takes the cake. I'm afraid this is from Chris Iyer, and he says, "Hi guys, insert boilerplate praise and slash whatever." Very XML compliant there. I've been a big fan of the show since around episode 70, although I eventually caught up. You even read out my Martian's flame. Anyway, I have an unusual request. I lost track of a developer friend of mine, Rupert Johnson. I used to work with him in Poole, England. I am getting married next year and would like to invite him. It is likely that he listens to the show or someone who knows him listens to the show. Please, can you give a shout out for me? <laughs> no yeah okay the answer is no next uh thanks again for putting out such a great show chris Iyer, e-y-r-e Iyer. and uh consider this the shout out and rupert if you're listening um just send us an email 
uh, .NET Rocks at franklins.net and let us know where you are. We, we don't have to read your email on the air, but I damn sure would like to. Yep. It's a, it, there's a mugging for you, man. Absolutely. So good luck, Chris. I hope he's listening. All right. What you got, Richard? I've got another ORM email. Can you believe it? No. It's true. Wow. Guys, friggin' awesome show I listen every week. This week's show in particular was really cool. I'm a huge fan of Rhino Mox and the work that Allende has done on his, this great framework. However, I'm not a huge fan of N-Hibernate for the very reasons that you guys brought up during the show. DBAs come back and yell at you for the way that most people use N-Hibernate and the queries it generates. We had actually used N-Hibernate on a production version of our app, but we ended up having to make workarounds so that we could interface with the DB in specific ways. Enter ibatis.net. Ibatis, that's I-B-A-T-I-S. That's right. And actually, I shrinksterized their site, so you can go take a look at it, shrinkster.com slash NK0. So that's November Kilo Zero. And Ibatis, like N-Hibernate, originally a Java version, now there's a .NET version as well, and even a Ruby version, which is kind of cool. So Ben goes on to say, Ibatis is the best of both worlds. You have a nice ORM API with your objects to your DB, but you write the SQL that the ORM uses to interface with the DB. This allows developers to map classes to queries as opposed to tables. This means you can use stored procedures again. Woohoo! Right. For some reason, N-Hibernate seems to be the only ORM that people are talking about, and I feel there needs to be more discussion on the Ibatis framework, as it is just as clean as N-Hibernate without sacrificing the ability to customize at low levels. Thanks again for the awesome show. Maybe one day I can be on it when my open source project Ndemo at ndemo.net takes off. Ben Monroe. Yeah, and you know, Scott Zischerk sent uh, us a very similar email, which basically said the same thing. He says, it occurred to me a lot of ORMs and code generators tend to default to use inline SQL calls to access database objects, which means you must give the user or user's select rights, if not more destructive rights, such as delete and update on the underlying tables. I've been using store procedures to access database objects, so the user or users can only delete and update records in a way that would be safer. That being said, I would like it if you guys could do a show on the pros and cons of different ways to access database objects from Do you see a theme here, Carl? I certainly do, and I think it's going to culminate at the RM Smackdown in uh, DevTeach. DevTeach? <laughs> DevTeach, yeah, that conference up in, uh, uh, where is it, up in your neck of the woods. Oh, yeah, if my, just, just like Seattle's in your <laughs> neck of the woods, right? <laughs> it's your country. <laughs> You're talking Not about mine, pal. Dev Teach in Montreal, Quebec, May fourteenth, yep. eighteenth. Yep. And you can visit there at devteach.com and Carl and I'll be there. And it sure sounds like we're gonna end up with an ORM panel at some point. Or something. I mean, like I said last uh, Tuesday, if we can't get it together like on stage, we're gonna go out to a bar and turn on the microphones, but we will have that conversation. And while we're calling out conferences, let's talk about Mix O seven. Yeah. April 30th to May 2nd at the Venetian in Las Vegas. That's going to be a huge conference. And uh, uh, we also know, as we've said before, that Microsoft's going to be announcing something very interesting that nobody knows. Nobody knows, not even us. We don't have any idea. And our friend Scott Guthrie's going to be there, keynoting again. Yep. Good show, if you're going to go. And uh, what else we got? TechEd coming up in Orlando. Right, that's June 4th to 8th. That's coming up. And, you better uh, hurry. They sell out early every year. 
And, of course, we'd like to mention the New York tour that we uh, mentioned on uh, Tuesday's show. Greg Brill Infusion New York City is offering free apartment for a year in Manhattan to work for him, plus a New York City salary. Shrinkster.com slash KH6. And also there's a gig in Washington, D.C. for ASP.net gurus. Uh, a great opportunity there as well. You can read about it at Shrinkster.com slash MMJ. All right, Richard, let's introduce our guest today. Uh, Daniel Simmons is a dev lead working on ADO.net at Microsoft. He's been at Microsoft for about 10 years working on a variety of products, including Outlook, Excel, Live Meeting, and some challenging but less fortunate projects like NetDocs and WinFS. Before coming to Microsoft, he spent several years as the founder of the second ever ISP in Idaho, as well as consulting with a number of small to medium sized organizations on custom development and IT projects. Welcome to the show, Dan. Thanks a lot. It's great to be here. Great to have you on. Wow, that's quite a list of uh, products that you've worked on. Yeah, I, you know, I never set out to be the guy who moved around Microsoft and did a million different things, but somehow that happened, and uh, it's been an exciting experience. Your, your, your focus is on data. Has it always been so? Well, you know, uh, it, it has been for a long time, even though I worked on a bunch of the office applications and things like that, most of what I have always done has been the data side of those applications. And wow. so uh, one of the things that was really cool when I came to the SQL Server and Data Programmability Organization was to say, let's bring the experience of looking at applications and how do we approach writing apps that use data to these guys who are spending all their time down in, you know, building the plumbing mm-hmm. only, you know. And so that and and that culminated in ADO.net. Is that what you're trying to get at here? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. you know, I I originally joined to work in the WinFS team, uh, you know, on the API side of that, and then we went through this uh, process of realizing that a lot of the innovation that was going into WinFS applied across all different kinds of backend database storage, and how could we sort of merge that into the general effort and down into ADO.net. Awesome. Well, you did a great job. Let me just say, I love ADO.net. Very cool. I appreciate that. It's, uh, uh, yeah, I certainly can't uh, claim responsibility for all of that, but it has been great to join this organization with uh, a lot of great people who've done a lot of great things and then ride on that and see what, what new things we can build. Do you have any, I know Richard's chomping at the bit here to ask you a couple questions, but I got to ask, um, are there any, you know, keywords or features or anything that you could take credit for or at least partial credit for? Well, Things when, we you, recognize? when you talk about the the new stuff coming, the ADO.net entity framework, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's the place where I've been really in the center of the object services layer of that essentially from the beginning. Okay. Um, <clears throat> you know, prior to joining the ADO.net team, all of my work pretty much was in non-managed, you know, native coding, so less of the, the .NET keywords there. Okay. All right. So you weren't working on ADO.NET 1.0. You're actually working on 3.0. That's right. 4.0. That's what, right. So, what, what version are we up to now? Well, I guess it's actually going to be 3.5. Okay. So when they, when they ship uh, Orcus, Orcus, the plan yeah. is the .NET framework will be sort of all 3.5. Cool. Uh, and that's the next ADO done that. Awesome. Now I got to tell the story. Okay. <laughs> so I first heard from Dan when he fired us an email when we were talking about the ORM SmackDown. Ah, right. Right. Yes. And because he, he and he talked about the ADO.NET Entity Framework, 
And I thought that was very, I mean, I've heard about the Entity Framework for a while now. And so I thought, well, we're going to the MVP Summit, so we'll have a chance to meet him. So I just said, I'll be there. I'll make sure to see that talk. Not that he was giving it, but he'd be there. So I go, and I'm on the ASP.NET side, right? And the, the MVP Summit tends to put you into your team. You know, the big thing that I think the MVP Summit gives more than anything else for MVPs is direct access to your team. The guys who are doing the work, you can get to talk to them and see what they're working on. It's very exciting stuff. So I crossed over, actually, to change buildings over to building uh, 42, found this session, this ADO.NET Entity Framework uh, introduction session, sat in the back and watched. And of course... MVPs, for the most part, you really know each other. And there's the usual suspects. Right. Okay. <laughs> so in a little cluster in the center on the right, I called them the N-Hibernate Mafia. Yeah. Right? And it was James Kovacs, Scott Belware, Jeffrey yep. Palermo, yep. Jean-Paul Boudou, yep. all in a little cluster. Yeah. And they're just hammering these guys because, <laughs> I mean, they are deeply honest. I mean, I'll tease these guys because they're all friends of the show without a doubt. Yeah. And Jeff Palermo's party, by the way, at the MVP Summit, off the hook. It was crazy. <laughs> I didn't even make it there. And I kept hearing about it. It's too bad. I missed that. Yeah. It was a heck of a party. So these guys, I mean, they buy ORM in a very deep way. And Absolutely. they're all in hibernate believers. Mm -hmm. You know, they're in there. And so they're looking at this product and it's very early stages, which I get, you know, that they're just getting started on this. It's it's just coming along now, been thought through a few times and they're comparing it to N-Hibernate and just boom, 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 boom. And yep. Dan, I didn't, I'd never met him before. I, he was sitting on the left, right at the front. And I figured out because there was a couple of his guys in the back that it was him. And when the session broke, he made the mistake of popping up a couple times and answering questions. So now they knew who he was. He had the target paint on his head. When the session <laughs> broke, it took him an hour to get out of the room. Oh. The boys were just on him. And even when he got out of the room, they were still on him. So I, I think we, had, we exchanged like four sentences. And mm. I said, look, I really got to get you on the show. Can I book you right away? And he said, absolutely. He says, I'm going to leave you alone. Because I've been in your hot seat <laughs> where you're surrounded by guys who are just on you. Yeah. You go to work. This is the gig. And I'm, I'm going to go. I'm going to go get something to eat. Right. It, was a, it was a cool discussion. It was so good, in fact, that a, a group of us said, hey, you guys, clearly we need to talk some more. And so the next day we scheduled a lunch after one of the other sessions and just all sat around in a room in front of a whiteboard with a big group and just went at it. That is so cool. And, uh, and I think one of the things that was very uh, apparent to us, several of the folks from the ADO.net team talking to these folks, was that there's this impression that this group of people have that we just completely don't get their style of working. We don't get what they do within Hibernate. We're not, you know, we're trying to build this other product. And that's an impression, as you say. Yeah, and so as, the more we talk about it, we work through that. You know, at, at one point I stopped, Je uh, Jeffrey Palermo and I sat down and talked for maybe an hour straight. And I said, okay, here, let's stop for a second. And let me give you a vision for a few releases out. Well, this is what it could be like. Right. And I sort of de start describing this. And he's like, yeah, perfect. You got it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> now let me describe to you why that's not coming this release. And I'm sorry. Yes, you'll stick within Harbinator a little longer. <laughs> yeah, I rem seem to remember talking to you. I think it was Jimmy Nielsen about 
uh, the entity's product and how he blogged about it. And after he blogged about it, he says he has no idea what happened, but all of a sudden all traces of it were gone from Microsoft's website. Like the product just disappeared. And so, you know, he, he sort of kids everybody and people kid him that he killed the product. <laughs> so so it's, it was funny to me. I've been listening to the show for a while and I remember listening to this exact uh, session and uh, and laughing on my way to work that <laughs> that uh, yeah nobody on the product team was even aware of his blog entry when that thing went out and came back right <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know, like, I was like oh well yeah that's interesting uh, maybe I should go read that blog entry <laughs> right but you know it's the typical stuff that happens with these you know when you're trying to forge a lot of new ground and there's a lot of different teams inside Microsoft and a lot of stuff going on and somebody says hey I want to share some stuff about this and so something goes up and then oh wait somebody no Oh, wait, wait, wait. Yeah. <laughs> you know, got to get the coordinated message. Right, right. Yeah, they, it is a complicated machine, the inside of Microsoft. So you're talking about the entity framework. Let's, uh, let's define that before we go any further. Sure. So, so if, we, if we take a look at the entity framework, it's kind of a broad topic. So I'll give, give a little bit of vision, and then we can, talk, we can sort of dive in and talk about what actually appears in Orcus and, and in future releases. Okay. So the idea of the entity framework is to create a new data model that's a higher abstraction than what you get from the relational data model, that's uh, sort of closer to the way that we actually think about right applications, right business logic, but that has the same kind of theoretical underpinnings that uh, will give it sort of long-term legs that you get out of the relational model. Uh, so, so the basis of this is the entity relationships kind of model that was defined by this guy, uh, Dr. Peter Chen, a long time ago, 1976. There was when he published the first paper on it. But, but usually the way people use uh, entity relationships in practice is they draw pictures on a whiteboard or or maybe in a, an electronic document. That's how they're going to reason about things, but then they translate that into some completely different form when it comes time to actually build the relational database and build your application logic. Right. And so the idea of the entity framework is that we make a, a real runtime representation of the structure, the, the model of your data and the constraints on that that's in terms that are much closer to the way your application runs. So, and, and more like the way people think about it. I keep seeing the whiteboard drawings we do where we just draw sales. And you know that's a raft of tables. Right. So the, it'd be fair to say it'd be fair to say that in general this is falls into the ORM category. It, it does, but there's a there's a pretty key distinction because one of the things that we're trying to do is capture the just the structure and the relationships and constraints on the data as a separate thing before you get to the point of actually building your objects that have behaviors okay, and that have business logic on them. And the reason why we do that is that we had this realization in the company, not only have we had this ORM problem that's been going for some time, where people want to write business logic and they need to do it in terms of their objects, but you've also had this same kind of problem showing up in a variety of other things, like if you go look at replication. And you say, okay, I'm going to do replication from SQL Server to a client machine because I want to have an offline operation. And so I'm going to use merge replication. It's not replicating everything in the table. Mm. And suddenly I want to pick pieces of several different tables to make up one logical entity and make sure that that thing replicates all at once or not at all. I remember this. Dave Campbell brought this up at the beginning of the session, exactly that scenario, that Merge replication just sort of opened this can of worms up because suddenly you wanted to keep this data in sync between these two machines. You didn't necessarily need it all, 
and you didn't want partials. It had to be, you know, the reality of replication is you're always further away than you wanted to be. And the connection fails and you want it to be able to know where to roll back to. So you've got to be able to define a transaction around that replication. Yeah, that's a, that's a big challenge. Well, it's a challenge that the replication team has been taking on for a while, and they've been building their own way of defining the pieces that go together to make up a logical unit for replication. And then we said, okay, that sounds kind of like what we're doing for objects. And then we look a little farther around the company, and we come to people working on reporting. And they say, well, I have the exact same problem. I want to pick these pieces from a table, and Mm. I want to secure them with a security token so that I can filter on them and only show certain ones in reports to certain people. And I want to manipulate them and have an authoring language that operates at this higher level. And so they define their own thing that talks about how the pieces that go together. And then you go talk to the WCF guys, and they're defining the pieces that go together that show up in an XML document or some other form when you're remoting. And suddenly you find that this same problem is being redone in separate silos all around. Right. And, yep. and we'd like to find one representation that you can say, okay, I'm going to build the model of the logical entities that work in my application and the way they're related to each other, and then I want to reuse that information in all of these different places. That's uh, – who, who said it? Scott Hanselman has a famous quote that's like, every problem can be solved by adding one more layer of indirection. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I don't Hopefully, know who said it. But. Hopefully we find a way to do that so that uh, that one more layer not only added value to the programmer time, but it didn't hurt the performance. That's right. the big challenge. Right? That's always the battle with more indirection is it's more difficult to understand, more challenging to code, and everything runs slower. And, and so, so one, of the, one of the ways that people do this today is they say, well, we'll build, the, we'll build it all in object relational mapping, and then we'll take these sets of objects, and we'll use them as the basis for writing all of our other things. Right, yeah. And then they discover, well, gee, the performance didn't work really well for my report, so then I'll go write, I'll optimize that by hand and throw out all of my mapping and write my own queries. Just got to get one of those 90 processor quad, uh, you know, 90 processor uh, core chips from Intel or whatever. <laughs> and deploy it to every one of your customers. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and several terabytes of RAM, you'll be fine. <laughs> No problem. Problem solved. Next. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, <clears throat> in the interim. <laughs> That's why I get the big bucks, man. <laughs> so, so, so this is the, the strategy that, that is sort of, I think, one of the unique contributions of the Entity Framework is to sort of separate this idea of the model and the structure from actually going to the objects. So we talk about having a... You know, concrete model, which is the way your database is actually structured, and then having a conceptual model, which is still, you, you access it just like you access other data in ADO.net. So you have a connection, and you have a command, and you get back a reader, and it's all highly optimized so that as you ask for each column in each row, it only pulls the data over the network as it needs to, mm-hmm. and all of these things. We do the same thing at a next layer up that does mapping and reshaping so that you get data that is in terms of your conceptual model, but it's still super efficient, and it works and acts and smells just like ADO.net. Awesome. And and then we add another layer on top of that, if you want, for some part of your application where you can actually build your objects and write business logic that way. And so there's sort of these two steps. And one of the things that we encounter with with, uh, all of these folks who are coming from in Hibernate, because they're focused so much on the objects, Right they're a little bit frustrated that what we've added at that layer doesn't yet have all the features they want. I see. 
And, and one of our messages is to say, yes, what we really want is to have you understand this foundational piece where we get this mapping piece, and it can be reused in all these different ways, and it meets your needs and all of the rest of our customers. Yeah. And then over time, we can improve on just the object piece. And by the way, that also gets easier because it doesn't have the mapping. Right. In, and in by the, the time it. that's done, it's going to have more meat underneath. So it'll actually be a lot more powerful and cover a lot more ground. Where does, where does it fit in terms of the user interface? Well, so interestingly enough, one of the things that happens today, I think, is that people end up writing... Um, applications where they put explicitly extra layers because they don't have a good way to do object relational mapping and merge it with their domain objects. So they'll have these DTO objects that are just carrying around the data, and then they'll wrap every one of them in a business object, and then they'll put a UI at the next layer up on top of that. And one of the things that's interesting that we can do here is we can say the mapping gets it into the right shape, and then you're, you don't have to have two layers of objects. The, the domain objects come directly out of that, and then you can build your, a, uh, you know, your UI on that, which maybe work very naturally on top of that. You know, we can have data binding services where if your entity is, a, is an order and you want to have a grid of orders, just data bind directly to those objects. Hmm. Or it might be that you want to do you know, a higher order transformation on top of that because your UI needs to look at it in yet another form. In terms of the developer UI... What it, where does does it live in Visual Studio? Is is there any kind of does it hook into the designers? Or? Yeah. So so today what we're doing is in Orcas what we're going to ship is definitely some integration with Visual Studio, but we probably won't have all of the tools that we want long term. So so you can just go into Visual Studio with like if you get the March uh, CTP of Orcas, and you can say I want to add a, a new item to my project, and you say I want an ADO.NET entity item. Yep. And then you get this little wizard, and you can pick either go to a database, and you give it a way to connect to a database, and you pick the tables, and it'll sort of auto-generate a starting point model for you. Mm-hmm. Or you can say, take me to an empty conceptual schema definition file, and you can write your conceptual model sort of from scratch, hmm. and then do a separate exercise to go and map that model down to the database. And and. The current plan is that what actually ships in the box in Orcus is pretty much just that experience, but that we're going to ship um, sort of out of band on the web more visual tools around visually designing the schemas and and maybe even getting to the point of visually specifying the mapping. Okay. Today you have to do that in a declarative format. And, and long-term, I think we believe that we're going to need a whole variety of these. You're going to need the visual one. You're going to need one where you actually author the XML files that we have today. We're also going to want to have the ability to say, hey, just go to my classes and put a few attributes on them, kind of like Absolutely. the experience you can get in some of the other products. And, and then in any of those ways that you specify it, it still turns on into the same runtime representation that we have of the metadata system that's part of the entity framework that knows about all of these mappings. Now, it, since it's based on or, or related to ADO.net, I assume that it can use whatever data provider that you want to yeah, That's use. exactly what I was thinking. It's like, so we're not bound. This doesn't all have to be from SQL Server. This is anything we can cram into a data set. Yeah, so this is, this is a critical point, and... Um, Unfortunately, it turns out we do need a change to the providers, oh. uh, but Uh-oh. the change that's needed is relatively small, and we've been working with the providers. We've had multiple provider fests already where people came in, 
and we said, all right, we want you to work on making changes to your provider in the course of this week. And by the end of the week, they had queries up and running. Provider Fest. I got to look that up on Wikipedia. Hang on. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a good one. I love um, it. So, so the, the basic uh, technical point that we discovered is this problem of writing queries that run against multiple backend providers and do it in a predictable fashion is a very difficult one. And ADO.net took a different stance on this from previous data access technologies in Microsoft in that we said, you know what, we're not in that business. We just hook you up, and then you give us a string, and we just send it down to the provider, and we don't know what that string means, and we yeah, get back right. data. Yeah. But suddenly we have this problem that we have to understand what that string means, and we have to reshape it and uh, do all these mapping kinds of exercises. Hmm. So we defined this thing that we call a canonical query tree. It's just a tree format of your query that's in terms of relational algebra and in terms of the schema of the provider. And then the one change we need is the provider needs to take that tree and translate that into their actual SQL. But because it's the tree is so SQL-like, yeah. that translation process is really quite straightforward. The other question that comes to mind is, how does this work with link or D-link? So, uh, absolutely, it's a good question. Uh, first, we'll talk about how Link works over the Entity Framework, and then we can talk about how that compares to what's going on in, in okay. D-Link or Link to SQL. So, so because um, we have this, you know, transformation to the conceptual model, and then we have the ability to have objects that sit on top of that, it's very natural then to take these enumerations of objects that are my logical entities that I can query from the database and think about wanting to do link queries on top of them that, so you get strong typing and those kinds of things. But the big challenge, of course, is that you want those link queries to be translated into back-end queries rather than get back all my data and then filter it right. in memory. Yeah. Um, and so that's the key concept uh, you know, in link of being able to define an interface that's iQueryable and get a handle on that specification rather than the compiler actually compiling it. And then we do a runtime translation of that query specified into the same query format, these same query trees, and then it runs through all the rest of our stack the same as if you had specified the query any other way. Okay. Um, and in particular, one of the big innovations in the Entity Framework is the ability to say, not only do you have link as an option, but you also, for those cases where you really have to have a dynamically generated query, we have a rich query language that we call Entity SQL. It's very close to SQL, but it has extensions, so it understands the things in the in the Entity data model, like inheritance and navigating relationships, sweet, and things like that. Um, but it is a full representation query language, so it's got you know you can compose your queries, you can do joins, you can do very very rich query capabilities. Wow. Um, and then those get translated. So you can do it sort of either way. You can either buy into Link, uh, which for some solutions makes very great sense, and for some solutions not, not as much sense, or you can go the textual-based query option. So um, this is, again, a classic feature of the strength of the .NET framework, that if you need to get under the hood, you can. It's not going to be simple. You got to work hard to do it, but it's worth it because it means there's really no roadblocks. I think the big thing that people fear in the whole ORM concept is that you're going to abstract me away from my yep. data and sooner or later, you're going to burn me for that. There's going to be black no box way. me. Yeah. And, and absolutely, you know, since being the ADO.net team, we have lots and lots of feedback from the customers who are using relational data access today. 
And one of the things that we tried really hard in doing this, and I, I think is another way that, uh, that the entity framework is very different from some other ORM efforts, is that we're saying it's very much in the spirit of ADO.net. So it's a series of components that are public and there's architecture that you can look at all the different pieces and you can buy into as much or as little as you want. Um, and it does everything, you know, according to ADO.net principles. So, for example, we never make a query unless you know when it's going to happen. Ah. Very explicit. We never talk to the database unless it's explicit. If you want to build something that does it automatically and implicit on top, we provide the hook so that you can do that. But you have that kind of control to be able to optimize your your application and and they don't want to break that cardinal rule of don't do stuff I didn't expect and tell me when you are going to do something. Exactly. And this is this is a problem that most ORMs struggle with because they're trying so hard to give this transparent experience to the business logic developers that there's no database here and I just when I go to my customer I've got a collection of orders and I just go enumerate it and magically the orders are all here. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, then that introduces all of these, you know, unexpected behaviors in your application. It becomes very difficult to get the performance and all of the other characteristics correct. And there, and you mentioned like the business logic tier. I can see that this is not a replacement for CSLA.net Rocky Laka's framework. That it's really something that would work underneath that framework because business objects are a different creature from entities. Entities are only one small part of the equation. Uh, you know, absolutely. I think for some class of applications, mm. you might say that I'm going to make my entities and my business objects be the same. Um, and I think for the first time, we begin to have enough abstraction from the database and enough control that you could actually entertain that for right. some real projects. But clearly, there are projects that go beyond that, and, and you're going to say, no, absolutely, I want to have a separate layer. Have you ever felt envy for the new slick interfaces introduced in Windows Vista? I'm sure you want to have something similar in your apps, but unfortunately that's quite hard to achieve with Windows Forms. There is WPF, of course, but that requires you to adopt a whole new programming model. Wouldn't it be nice if you could have scaling, rotations, animations, alpha blending, complex gradients, and all that in classic Windows Forms? How cool would your application be then? Well, it's going to stand out and it's definitely going to look nice. Stop envying and start delivering great experiences today. Telerik Rad Control Suite for WinForms offers the first Vista-style controls for Windows Forms. Pick a Vista piece of UI and try to implement it with the Telerik controls. Chances are that you can do it. Join the Telerik WinForms Challenge today to explore the controls in a fun and engaging way. The challenge is a mini quiz that shows off the unique features of the controls. In just 10 to 15 minutes, you can see how you can make your desktop apps much more appealing. And you can win a product license by simply answering five questions correctly. And everybody who completes the challenge is automatically entered into the drawing for the grand prize... Get this, a 50-inch plasma TV. Check out Telerik Rad Controls for WinForms and join the WinForms Challenge today at www.telerik.com slash contest. So what kinds of projects would this be applicable to, to have your your business logic and your entities uh, one and the same? Like, where would that be a good idea? Well, I think it, it has to do with how complicated your business logic is. I think for for we're 
we're striving for the world where you can have the flexibility that you need with as few layers as possible, right? And so, so once we have the ability to transform from my underlying relational model into my logical conceptual model, and even have the ability to, after the fact, tune my database and change my mapping without having to change my conceptual model, suddenly I get the opportunity then to say, well, if I put my business logic here, I don't have to worry about having to refactor all of that business logic because I had to change my database to add another denormalization to get the perf right or something. Um, so, so for I would suggest that for a great many applications, you know, you might find that hey, I can actually write the business logic that knows how to to work in my domain directly in my entity objects, and and I've gotten a big win in reducing complexity. That said. There are also times where you say, hey, you know, my application has, even though I have conceptual entities, I have two ways of looking at the world. Yeah. I've got the way when I'm writing the the rich client or the mid-tier, and then I've got the way when I remote it because I need to deal with bigger packets at once. Right. Logic's going to change. You know, one element that business objects definitely lend themselves to that entities also do is this idea of encapsulating the larger picture of a block of data that's related. But you can also see where business objects go in different directions. And the first thing that hit me was stuff like workflow, that if you are using this set of entities, then you must involve one of X other entities based on the data you're working with. And that just gets out of the scope of entities pretty quickly. Well, you know, that's something that we haven't really defined. What is the scope of an entity as opposed to a business object? Well, so that, that's kind of interesting. I think this example that uh, Richard was giving is is a pretty good way to think about this. You know, the the entity becomes a logical unit that is basically persisted. So, you know, it's a customer, it's an order, it's a some data class, some data class. Uh, but it can have because it's an object now, and because it merges all of the pieces that go together to make up that entity for real. You can actually write business logic in there, and you can add operations and behaviors to them. You know, I can have on my order object that comes straight from the database the ability to submit it to some right. next step. But then I might or have do a the tax calculation. So really, what when we say entity, we just mean a persistible object, whether that object is a business object or not. Is that correct? A good way to describe it? Yeah, I, I think it is a good way to, to describe it. Uh, in, in particular, in the case of the entity framework in, in Orcus, we're talking about ones that you are persisting to the database. In future releases, it might be that that definition may even more generally be true because you might say, hey, we have other ways to take uh, entity data model and persist them. Maybe it's that I transform it to XML I was just and I send say, it over to something else. Yeah, I was just going to say, you trans. trans uh, transform them to XML, and then, you know, you can persist them on the disk. Now you're sort of getting into, like, serialization stuff, right? I mean, you're sort of getting into that murky area. Well, absolutely. And, and one of the interesting things about serialization is that you could say, well, I might build all my objects and then serialize them. And for some set of applications, that makes sense because um, I need to run business logic before I serialize to decide if I'm going to do it or something yeah. like that. Yeah. But I might have some other scenarios where I say, you know what, all I want to do is get these logical things out of the database and get them on the wire as fast as possible. Hmm. And then something like the entity provider going direct to ADO.net and not ever building objects could be dramatically more performant. Ah. I can also see it as a great stubbing solution. Why wait for the database to finish being built? 
when I could define these entities and what they look like ahead of time and work against those. Sort of like mock objects? Well, well, in a sense, you could in say sense, that. Uh, you they're know, not you really mo- they're mocking the database, not the logic, though. That's the difference. Well, well, yeah, you know, people do this today when they just go build their domain objects. But one of the interesting things that happens when you introduce a conceptual model is that you get extra constraints that parts of the framework can enforce for you. Mm. So, for example, you can define a relationship between two of your entities, and you can specify that, you know, the multiplicity of one end of the relationship is can be many, but the other one must be one. And then the framework can provide classes for you for the collections and references that automatically enforce and do fix-ups so that when I add a, hmm. a new customer, a new order to my customer's orders collection, that order automatically gets a reference back to the customer. Yeah. You didn't have to write any code to do that. Yeah, right. And so you can, get, you can get a ways down the road of getting your business logic and enforcing the same constraints that your database is going to enforce in a completely declarative fashion. Yeah, more and more declarative structures. And... Just, Rocky, I know you're listening out there. <laughs> I haven't forgotten about you. I think there's still a distinction here in CSLA.net that I think what Entities is bringing to the table now is that those very simple apps, the simpler class of apps that were built in CSLA.net, uh, because that was all we had, may well be switching to the Entity framework. But there's a level of sophistication here where CSLA.net is going to live happily. It is another layer of abstraction. Right. That will, if if both exist, if entity objects and CSLA both exist in the same project, that CSLA would be the larger level of abstraction over that. Absolutely, and you can certainly imagine, and you know, one of the one of the things again about this design point of buying into as much as makes sense. You might say, you know what, I don't even want the object services layer from the entity framework because <laughs> I already have CLSA.net. Right. But I do want this transformation. This this uh, ability to do mapping to a conceptual model underneath. Or the, you know, and I know you're not here for this version, so I'm not going to commit you to the feature. But the prospect that I'd be able to do those declarations in the entity framework and then hand it to replication and say, this is a unit of work. Make sure that gets replicated. That's a lot of code I didn't have to write. Sure. Absolutely, and and that's really that's really where the vision is, and that's that's why in this release we're saying, hey, let's get the mapping and the definition of this entity data model really nailed down, so we have this foundation, so that in future releases we can start delivering just a whole realm of services on these that you just get automatically. You build your objects and you do a little bit of information to let us know what the model was, maybe from just the definitions of your objects, or maybe because you authored them separately. And then you get to leverage that in a whole bunch of ways. Is there any way that you can um, hook into, or maybe you already have, or are planning to, hook into the, the White Horse class designer? I called it White Horse because that was the, the, the code name, but the class designer in Visual Studio. So, so right now we're not so much uh, hooking into the class designer because we're thinking more in terms of there's at least some set of customers that wants to go design their model first. Yeah. And not necessarily even thinking about classes. Right. And then do a separate exercise of moving to classes. So, you know, sort of I think the first goal for us is to say let's have a, a first-level entity data model designer. And then, but over time, there's lots of opportunities to, for tools. And, you know, 
going into the class designer and having a way to just sort of decorate and say, yeah, this hooks up to these entities. Or have it, have it, yeah, have it reverse engineer the way it does already with classes to have it represent those things as, you know, little things dangling off the classes that will bring up the, the entity designer. Absolutely. And, and this is, this is a very interesting point about generation. One of the, you know, one of the bits of feedback we get from folks that's right on the money is, hey, the kind of gener- automatic generation we have now goes from the database up to the model. But there's this other kind that a lot of people want, absolutely, that is going from the object down. And wouldn't it be nice if you could, from your object, say, generate me a database? Or, hey, I added this property to my object, and would you please not just generate the database, but generate the modification script that would add the column to the database? Or then if I decide to roll it back, generate a second script that'll pull it out. Let me give you my thoughts on that because, you know, I've talked to quite a few people uh, about this, that, you know, when we have... There's all sorts of tools that have been, you know, that have done this throughout time, you know, code generation tools that are sort of modeled down. And, uh, you know, what most people do, even, even, you know, especially the ones using like UML, right? Because UML is, is now just like white in the realm of whiteboards. You know, you design something, maybe you print it out to look at it, and then you go write your code. You know, there isn't any way to directly uh, you, you know, right. uh, rational for Java, okay, but for .NET, you know, there's no events or anything like that. So they have the class designer, but um, I don't see a lot of people using it just because, uh, you know, after a while, something will happen and it'll sort of just blow up. You know, uh, it, it's just v- seems like it's very hard for these designers to just go all the way to allowing me to just work with them throughout the whole life cycle of the application development. I, I agree. I think one of the interesting stories is that is the one that says, I'm not trying to generate my code from my model, but what I'm trying to do is I'm writing my code and then maybe putting a little bit of hints in it yeah. so that we can generate the model out of the code. Yeah, that's a very useful thing to do. Let me take a bird's eye view of of this code and see what it looks like. Absolutely. And I do think the key to all of this is sort of the requirement, if anybody's going to go down this path, is this nature of bidirectionality. That if I tweak the model, you can tweak my code, but don't mangle it. Right. And if I modify my code, it needs to be reflected in the model. Right. Absolutely. And and so I would say in Orcus, the, we're getting sort of some of this direction. We're getting the story that says, like many of the Visual Studio designers, hey, there's this way you can describe the model, and then we'll do cogen of partial classes. And if you put your data in the separate side of the partial class, everything works. But you also have the option, if you don't want to do that, of writing your classes from scratch, implementing a few interfaces that allow us to be aware of what's going on, and then writing the model by hand. In a later release, we want to be able to say, okay, let's go the next step, which is to say, you just write your classes, and then you tell us to build the model for you. Right. Either uh, either one time or in an incremental fashion, because that's just, the truth is in the classes. You know, we clearly have some set of customers who say the truth is in the model, because I'm a big corporation, and we have a back-end IT comp, uh, group, and they have written a model, and then they have different departments that write apps against that model. Right. And so that's one thing we want to support, but we also want to support the the group of folks that says, hey, the objects are the truth, and just always generate the model from there, and then we can work mm. down. Yeah. Because isn't the code, the code's always the truth, guys. It is the manifestation of it one way or the other. You may be able to cast the truth on, down to us from on high <laughs> and, and let us know if we match. 
But what we ultimately wrote is the truth, even if you didn't like it. <laughs> of course, that, I, I'm surprised to hear you saying that, Richard, being the database guy, because there's right. another camp who would say, no, 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 no. no. The data <laughs> the is the is truth. All, what's on disk? <laughs> yes. What I stored is what matters. Uh, you know, the, uh, I'm an I'm a, uh, IT-as-a-service kind of guy. In the end, I don't create the data. I only let you know what you got. And that means that the, you know, the guys who create the data are the, really the guys who matter in the end. It's important that we let them know we captured what was important, but you have to deal with the realities as well. Also, you know, instead of having the database, you have, you know, a family and children and, you know, other intelligent entities to look after, unlike some DBAs that all their life is the database. Hey, get out of there. <laughs> Put that down. Stop slapping your brother. <laughs> well, at least we wash our hair. True. Now we're going to get hate mail from DBAs all over the world. Right? I don't wash my hair. <laughs> <laughs> One of the scary... Uh possibilities that we're entertaining and or maybe exciting as uh, depending on how you want to think about it is that if you take this internet framework vision farther and farther forward you eventually say well why did i need to specify the relational model when i wrote my database at all why didn't i hand my entity data model directly to sql and say store this and do it fast yeah that's a very developer thing to say <laughs> And interestingly enough, from a SQL Server implementer standpoint, there's good and bad. Absolutely, there's a good reason why people go and tune their relational models and things yes. like that. Mm -hmm. But there's certain kinds of tuning we could do in the database if we didn't have to honor the relational model sometimes. Yeah, the trick is, of course, popping that up and saying, I could make this faster if you were willing to relax X rule. Yeah. Exactly. And, and so, believe me, I really dig the idea, just putting on my DBA hat for a moment. If you handed me a SQL script that was generated from ADO.NET Entity Framework, the, or the, more importantly, the client tool that sort of wraps over top of it and said, hey, we had to add this new property, and the framework thinks we should stick the column here. Here's the script to run it. You've now narrowed down my effort to add that column a lot. You said, this is where we think it ought to go and put it in a coherent form. I may not be totally happy with it, but you've also cut a big chunk of work out of my effort hmm. to implement what you need. Yeah. Sure. Well, and, and part of the point is imagine a world even farther in the future where I said, hey, every application I ever do with this data always goes through this conceptual model because my reporting and replication and my business logic and everything uses it. Right. And so now I'm going to tell you, DBA, this is what I want, and either SQL Server knows how to do that for you, or you just make that happen. It's not, you know, make it fast, please. It's an interesting idea that you could present me a, a manifested data model that I could approve, and after that, I can trust you to make alterations within that model. Yeah. That saves Absolutely. a lot of work. Well, it, and in general, we now have a boundary that's higher up, and you can make changes that I can trust you on. Right. You can go, you know, rearrange the schema all you want because you found a way to make it faster, and as long as the model is honored, my app is happy. That's just fine. And the fact that there's a declared model out there helps me to know what my boundaries are as a DBA. So what state is the entity framework in right now? Alpha, beta, gamma? <laughs> Where are we? So, so today you can download the, the Orcas March CTP, and I would say that's sort of um, almost beta. 
In fact, Beta 1 will be going out, I, I don't know the exact date, they're busily working on it. And from the standpoint of ADO.NET Entity Framework, the March CTP and Beta 1 are virtually identical. Okay. Um, there's some last set of features that we are busily working our brains out this week <laughs> to finish um, that will appear in Beta 2. And at that point, we'll be, you know, pretty much locked down for the Orcus release. So, so you can build apps today um, that work. And, and, you know, some uh, early adopters, Scott Bellware and some of these guys are actually out doing that now. Very um, good. And, you know, you can go go uh, search Technorati uh, for Entity Framework, and you'll find some interesting blog entries from some of these folks who are, who are out playing with these things today. Daniel? I got to ask a question because I, I mean, I've looked at your bio and I know you talk about some less fortunate projects at Microsoft. And one of them on the list is one that I was totally stoked about in, in 2003 at the PDC, and it was WinFS. What the hell happened to WinFS? <laughs> <laughs> you know, the interesting question is not necessarily what happened to WinFS, but what happened to the six projects before WinFS that were the same project that also died? Oh. <laughs> and, you know, the, the WinFS team actually had T-shirts for a while to boldly go where, you know, seven other projects have died before or something. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. That's, that's that takes a lot of nerve actually that's brilliant so well, what is it? all these Why? other talented people have bashed their brains in on this problem let's go bash some more so the number one excuse i heard and this would be a good dave letterman top 10 excuses you know win fs <laughs> excuses but uh the one i heard was that uh when we we couldn't make it work across the network oh boy i i don't know where that came from no wasn't uh, that in the press, Richard? Uh, I, you know, you know, it was all over the map. But oh well. So what's the real reason? <laughs> so my personal view on this is that we've had one problem after another with structured storage all around a basic concept, which we kind of talked about earlier in the show, which is biting off too much in a single release. Right. You know, I I was involved in WinFS from the outside, working on some of the other products in the company long before joining WinFS. And we would come and have meetings, and we would talk about requirements, and we would talk about vision and the things they were working on. And I would say to them the same thing every time. Pick 25% of all these things that you're talking to me about and ship it. I don't care which 25%. Right? Just go pick a piece right. and actually make it happen. Put and something in my is, hands. Exactly. The, the problem is that the, the promise of structured storage like WinFS is so tempting Everybody wants it. It was so good that every time you got ready to go for an executive review with, you know, pick your favorite Microsoft executive, they would say, that's great, but you left out the one thing I really wanted. Go try again until you have it. <laughs> oh, that's tough. So the feature set that people want is just too big to be partial. It, it absolutely is. And so finally... It, it, Different from some of the past efforts on structured storage, one of the cool things about WinFS is that we really did take and partition out what was left and say, all right, now that we know we're not going to ship WinFS, can we take pieces of the learning and plow them directly into products that we know are shipping? So Entity Framework, a big part of its history comes out of WinFS. If you go look at some of the uh, things that are being done about manageability in the next release of SQL Server, those things are coming out of WinFS. Yeah, it's not like all of this learning got thrown away. It just got scattered inside of the organization. All those smart people took what they learned from that project and applied it, and you're one of them. 
So now yeah. let me ask you the question. Do you think it's ever going to happen? Oh, boy, that's a harder one. <laughs> you know, interestingly enough, I think some pieces of what we were trying to do with WinFS are going to just become sort of natural pieces of other products with the possibility that you'll say, the applications I would have built with WinFS, I can now build very quickly and easily. I just don't have one central thing that does it. Right. And Entities is a part of that. Entities is a part of that. All of these different pieces are part of that. But there is one piece of WinFS that was a very cool idea that I don't know if we'll ever be able to do, which was every Windows box has not only a database, but it has a database with known schemas. And we've convinced people to write their apps on these schemas with extensions so that the data interoperates. Yeah, so the metadata is in everything. So you say, hey, my contacts from Outlook also work in my, you know, QuickBooks list of uh, customers. And it's the same. They just added a few properties. That's one of those great long-term promises. The one promise I think we've never been able to fulfill. Can't a contact just be a contact no matter where it's stored, no matter what app created it? So they're all searchable or relatable in some way. It's hairy, though, because everybody's got their own little things they want to add and therefore make incompatible, you know, and that sort of shoots down the whole, maybe 90% of the people can understand what a customer is. But once you start adding all these variants, it's customer one, customer two, customer three. Now, what are we going to keep a chart next to the computer? You know, you got to do this lookup. Which customer is it? Oh, you know, oh, no, I'm using, you know, it'll become like scuzzy, you know? Well, it would, it would be, yeah. <laughs> How many standards can we possibly make with the same name? Well, it would be one thing if what you were talking about was the set of properties, and you just said, oh, yeah, I tack on a few more properties. But the truth is, properties are pointless at this point. You, you need the business logic. Right. And that's just, I, I don't know, that's like uh, truly rocket science. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I don't know if it'll ever arrive. Merging that business logic is just an impossible problem. Yeah, it is. And, and there's so many, the problem is there's so many different motivations. I mean, I always looked at WinFS as the replacement for NTFS. I was after the next file system. That's what mattered to me. And thinking that SQL Server was going to provide it was kind of weird. You know, and then it got pulled into part of the OS. I'm like, oh, good. Now the OS guys are going to worry about this. But then it's just gone another direction. And there's so many different layers to the thing. You're right. It was totally out of hand. I mean, what do I really want from a file system? Don't lose my files. <laughs> That's what I really want from a file system. When I say stay, I mean stay. stay. <laughs> well, and, and interestingly enough, you also have this set of applications that are basically, you know, SQL Server kind of applications, but every once in a while they have a collection of really big streams, and storing them in the database was the wrong plan. Right. Yeah. I mean, we always used to store those big blobs of data on the file system and then put references to them in the database because sticking them in the database sucked. And, and so now I want a transaction across that. Yeah, good luck. Thanks right. for playing. But, and so that that's yet another one of the pieces of what could have been delivered in WinFS mm-hmm. if you ignored yeah. a bunch of other things. <laughs> like reality. <laughs> yeah, you, you know, you've really made your story solid that now i get that i feel exactly what you were describing there's so many things here if they picked a small enough set and hidden away from the executives long enough to give it to people 
we might have gotten something. Well, some of it slipped through, like the what is it, the the prefetch kind of uh, thing that I don't, I can't remember what it's called, but in Vista, it moves the file pieces of files that you use more often closer to the to the front. Yeah, it's possible that, that that came from WinFS. You know, the project is so big, it's hard to say. Right. But there's definitely, you know, that learning does get applied all over the place. You know, if you look farther back in time and look at a project like NetDocs, which was a huge effort, WinFS size effort inside the company a few years ago. And another one of your unfortunate experiences. Yeah, well, it was a great time, learned lots of stuff, didn't see the light of day as a product. What was NetDocs again? I can't remember. So it was basically this project where we said, hey, we need to reinvent the way we build business applications like Office. We want to build them in a new way that is aware of the Internet, and it's aware of software as a service, and it leverages a bunch of new technologies. And so we said, let's build a team in parallel to the Office team to go sort of rebuild Office and build a foundation for business applications in general. And in fact, we took this project all the way to the point where we were about to release a public beta and then had this realization that, well, it's kind of like Office, but it's not a clear superset. It's not exactly a political piece of cake. And guess what? It, it, it's a re- being released right about the time when the .NET framework is becoming real and it's not built using the .NET, .NET framework. framework. <laughs> uh. Um, and and suddenly there are all these issues that make it kind of not an obvious play. But there were a bunch of cool ideas, like, you know, pretty much NetDocs helped push Outlook along to the to the world where you have an always offline store by default. Um, huh. And if if you go to Windows XP and you look at those little bars in the Explorer with the little boxes that that appear and disappear based on your context, right? That hmm. was a NetDocs UI concept. Hmm. And, you know, the little pieces like the that ribbon. all spread. Yeah, with the ribbon. Well, the the ribbon, interestingly enough, we, we called them context blocks in NetDocs, right. and they went down the left-hand side of the screen. And then in the new version of Office with the ribbon, they kind of moved them up to the top of the screen, and yeah, it's pretty much the same idea. Yeah. <laughs> you know the problem is, I think, here? Microsoft is not allowed to do projects. It's always got to be a product. We all would have been happier if WinFS had been a project knowing this is not going to ship code directly. It's going to be a collection of thinking and experiments that will be found in other products, which is really what happened. How can you call WinFS a failure if you look at it that way? I imagine it as, you know, when the product dies, you know, like an autopsy where you have like, you know, or, or what do you call it? No, like a like an organ harvest, right? Yeah, yeah I was thinking more like vultures, but yeah, okay. <laughs> well, well, there's a certain amount of that, and then there's the angst of the people who just put their blood, sweat, and tears in this thing and really think it's going to ship. Yeah. And, yeah, you know, that's tough. Do they do anything for you if when that when they cancel a project? Do they like take you out to dinner and you know any consolation prizes or anything? Awake? Like, no, there's a certain uh, certain amount of uh, try to distract you by the next new shiny thing as fast oh, as possible. Man. <laughs> right? There should be some you know sort of ritual service like Richard said, awake or something. <laughs> you know, where everybody dresses in black and you like do a little ceremony. I'm serious. That stuff is important. <laughs> We, it's like we, we need like, to move on, you know? An informal version of this, the day they announced that NetDocs was 
was uh, canceled. We had this huge conference room with all these people in it, and people are showing up with beer and, you know, <laughs> they get to the end and somebody says, I've got a, uh, any questions, and somebody raises his hand and he says, can I have my job back? <laughs> you know, <laughs> it, was a, it was a sad day. <laughs> I'm telling uh, NetDocs stories. Oh, I remember NetDocs. <laughs> oh, man. Well, and I, I really like the idea that that you would have these projects where these talented folks could dream and push these ideas around and try different pieces of it and yeah. not consider it a failure when ultimately they say, okay, we've sort of gone as far as we're going to go on this. Let's take the valuable bits with us and take them to other things. Well, Microsoft Research does that, right? All those great research projects like you saw the other week, Richard? Yeah, I, I would think so. Though They tend to be even further out. Yeah. yeah, there's a big difference between a product even in a in a project form, even as an incubation, and a Microsoft research effort. You know, there's something about building the code to build a something that might possibly ship. And it's, I, th I also think it's really about a team, too. To take a bunch of office guys and clear the whiteboard off and say, okay, guys, if you're going to rethink office, what would you do? Yeah. You know, knowing the pain points you've got in office right now and you were going to start over. I think you get a very different vision than the researchers, you know, exploring those brand new ideas. What's a different way to word process? That kind of thing. I was just going to say, this is definitely one of the coolest things about being at Microsoft is that, is that uh, you can go work on these really exciting things and not have to worry that um, your startup is going to disappear out from under you <laughs> and yeah. uh, that you can go explore something and then, then move on to something else. Right. The venture capitalist shows up and says, ship it now. <laughs> <laughs> Are there any projects going on like at Microsoft Research or anywhere else that, uh, that maybe you're not involved in that you wish you were involved in because they sound really cool to you? Well, you know, I have a tendency to get so focused on the project that I'm working on and, and the space immediately around it that I'm sort of like heads down up until the day when I derail and go somewhere else. <laughs> and, wouldn't, it, wouldn't one of those alternatives be you ship? And then you need to go somewhere else. You know else. what it's like when two new mothers get together, like they've just had their babies and maybe they're like a year old and they get together for the first time and they talk and how one talks about hers and the other nods and pretends to listen, but really she's thinking of what she's going to say about hers. <laughs> and, then, and they both talk, but neither of them can hear a word the other is saying. Is it like what happens when you guys have lunch with somebody who's working on another project? <laughs> Do you ever say, tell me about your project? And then, you know, they're blah. Blah 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 blah, and you can't hear a word they're saying. Does that happen a lot at Microsoft? It happens a little bit, although there's there's a tendency to listen just enough to say, "No, you're doing it wrong. You ought to be doing it using my stuff." I always figure you weren't even going to answer that one, Daniel. These are people you have to work with. Oh no, I don't listen to any of my guys that I talk to. No, not at all. <laughs> blah, 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 ORM, blah, 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 and hibernate, <laughs> blah, 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 blah. <laughs> we, we pretty much have to just get used to the fact that we all work that way. Yeah. yeah. Well, you have to be completely immersed in what you're doing to really give it the opportunity that it deserves. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. All right, man. We're going to have to wrap it up. Hey, uh, Daniel, thanks a lot for talking to us. This has been a great... Uh, Great, great little discussion. Oh, it's been a pleasure for me as well. Thank you very much. And good luck on shipping uh, the, the uh, Entities Framework, and I can't wait to see it. 
Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, and please uh, encourage folks to go check out some of these, uh, you know, the CTP, get on the forum, those kinds of things. We have some links there, and we'd love to hear the feedback. Well, and Absolutely. I know from personal experience, you take feedback in a serious way. You dive into guys that make me afraid. So, you know, that feedback is important. It is, and, yeah, and, right? yeah it really a lot is. of you, you had a knack for generating a lot of passion in the room that day, and uh, I hope it keeps going forward. Very good. Very cool. All right, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a 